guys, it's Michael Thomas. And I'm Drew Howell. Welcome to our third episode of Busted. We're continuing our series focusing on the trusted employee. In our first two episodes, we looked at a couple of successful businesses that each had employees exploit the trust that they had earned with their employer. But this type of fraud can affect other types of organizations as well, like unions, like charities. That's what we're talking about today, right, Michael? That's right. Today, we're going to look at Melissa King, who embezzled over $40 million of pension and benefit plan money from about 1,000 construction workers who were part of the Sandhogs Union in New York. Now, this is an incredibly sad story because King's fraud was incredibly extensive. Michael, who were the Sandhogs and who was Melissa King? So the Sandhogs, let's start with them. Their full name was the Compressed Air and Free Air Foundations, Tunnels, Cassins, Subways, Cofferdams, Sewer Construction Workers, Local 147 in New York and New Jersey. And you wonder why they went by Sandhogs. Yeah, they certainly needed to shorten that name to something a little bit easier to say. Now, this labor union was one of the most important unions in New York City. Its members dug every tunnel in New York and poured many of the foundations for the city's most important bridges and buildings. Without this union, there would be no subway system, no water system, no sewer system anywhere in New York. Now, the work that this union did specifically was really hard and also really dangerous, right? It was. I mean, in in the 70s, The union had a phrase, a man a mile, which meant that on average, one person died for every mile that was dug. So they dug 15 miles of tunnel. They lost 15 men. Hmm. Incredibly dangerous, incredibly important work. But the reward that these union members had at the end of the day was the pension and benefit plans that they were saving, that their employers were saving for them at the end of their career. Under the collective bargaining agreement, their employers established and maintained benefit plans and pension plans for the Sandhogs. That's where Melissa King comes in. Melissa King was the third party administrator for these benefit plans for the Sandhogs. King collected the contributions from the employers for the benefit plans, maintained the bank accounts and the funds, kept track of the money, paid out eligible claims. She was in charge of the money. And for her services, she received at first $30,000 a month, but later that salary was increased to $45,000 a month, over $500,000 a year. Wow. That's not a bad salary for that job, $45,000 a month. And it was actually a little bit better than that, right? They were paying her expenses as well, allowing her to pay for help and whatever supplies and resources that she needed. So she was making far more than any of the union members were making. And how did she get this job, Michael? I mean, it's a great question. So she, surprisingly, King was a college dropout. She, after trying college and failing, she went to work for her parents' company, the King Administrators. And her parents' company administered and and managed pension and benefit plans for a variety of industries. And through that job, King developed a relationship with unions. Eventually, King took over her parents' business. And in January 2002, 
the Sandhogs hired her to administer their pension and benefit plans. These administrative positions necessarily require a trustworthy individual, right? There's tons of transactions happening on a daily basis. The sheer amount of the transactions and the flow of money make the opportunities for fraud endless. That's right. And here, that opportunity was seized almost immediately. King got control of the Sandhogs funds in January 2002, and she started embezzling money from the Sandhogs soon thereafter. In our first two schemes, we saw really complex scenarios where people were manipulating books and records, or with respect to fries, they negotiated deals outside the the view of fries. But here, King's fraud was really straightforward. She wrote herself checks. She used her check writing authority to write $50,000, $35,000, $60,000 checks to herself. And then in the end, when all was said and done, those checks that she wrote to herself amounted to over $40 million. And that kind of circles back to the theme we've been discussing in our first two episodes, right, Drew? Are you talking about trust? (laughs) I guess there's a little too easy of a setup. Well, I think that's what makes this situation a little bit more unique. These individuals who trusted her were forced to trust her. It wasn't by choice. The unions and the employers placed an unbelievable amount of control in the hands of one person, King. And the people that ultimately paid the price had no control over who it was that was managing their money. That's right. I mean, they didn't have control. And and ultimately, no one was really looking over King's shoulder. Like you said earlier, Drew, these are positions that really require a trustworthy individual who, because she's going to have so much control over so many different people's lives. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, we're like you said, we're putting the trust in one person, and that person's in charge of tens of millions of dollars. Nobody thought this was a bad idea. I mean, apparently not. It's been my experience that organizations like these, like charities, unions, clubs, those types of organizations that have really noble purposes, people think that if you work for one of these organizations, you must just be inherently trustworthy. But fraud and deception and theft can affect these companies just as much as they can private companies. And that's what happened here. We tend to put a high amount of trust in charities and organizations, but just because they have a noble purpose doesn't necessarily mean that the people who work for them aren't going to be tempted by fraud. Now, these types of organizations, especially a union that's handling tens of millions of dollars, should put in place processes and procedures that would discourage fraud. So this situation, we have a union that's a, it's a fairly small union. That While the Sandhogs had a 1,000 members, that's really, in the grand scheme of things, considered a pretty small union. So what would a small organization or a small union, what type of processes and procedures would you expect to see in those? Well, I mean, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but just like what we talked about with the Collins Street Bakery, I think the person who's writing the checks or has check writing authority should not be the same person who is, has access to the bank accounts and is responsible for reconciling the books versus the bank records. It seems to me that there could have been another layer 
of separation or someone else who had to approve payments over a certain amount. I mean, those are simple things. Agreed. And, and also a, a simple audit would have uncovered this fraud really quickly and actually did at the end of the day. Now, auditors will tell you that it's not their job to find fraud. Their job is just to make sure that the books and records are on the up and up. But here, King's fraud was so brazen, so simple, it would have been easily uncovered that she was writing checks to herself. I mean, at the end of the day, the bank account that King was writing checks to was the King Care bank account. So it was really clear that King was looking really out for herself. Yeah, I mean, I think, like you said, she was supposed to be responsible for looking out for these union members' best interest, but she was looking out for herself. That's not to say she didn't do anything to cover up her fraud. She was engaging in some pretty creative bookkeeping to make it look like no money was missing. When someone was asking for money, they were getting paid. She was sending monthly statements to union members, making it look like everything was in order when it wasn't. The statements would indicate that there was much more money in these accounts than there was in reality. Michael, let's talk a little bit about how it was that she got caught. Well, there's a couple of really unfortunate incidences leading up to her capture. In 2005, the Federal Department of Labor first noticed that there were some irregularities with King's paperwork for the Sandhog Union. And they started asking questions. Ultimately, the Department of Labor issued a fine for the union. But interestingly, King was able to keep that information out of the trustees' hands. The trustees never knew, or didn't know at the time, I should say, didn't know that King and the Sandhogs unions were fined for bad bookkeeping. And then in 2008, the trustees ultimately hired an auditor, and the auditor looked at the books and records and really quickly uncovered King's fraud. That wasn't a hard task, right? Once they undertook the audit and looked at the actual books, it was pretty clear. In 2008, there was a single day where she wrote eight checks to herself, each in the amount of $60,000. The books showed a clear pattern of theft. She was spending thousands of dollars a day on personal items that had absolutely nothing to do with administering the benefit plans for the unions. The union turned King over to the Department of Labor. They did a more thorough investigation, and ultimately that resulted in her indictment. Now, one thing we know about King is that she had a propensity for the high life even before she started working for the Sandhogs. She had multiple failed marriages, one of which was to a high-earning individual who later stated that she had high spending habits. She ultimately got herself in trouble and filed for personal bankruptcy in 1996, and as we now know... Those spending habits did not change. Michael, why don't you tell us how she spent over $40 million? Well, at sentencing, the prosecutor stated that King lived like a king, and he wasn't exaggerating. Her daughter was an amateur equestrian champion, and King spoiled her. At one point in time, she owned over 15 horses paid for by the Sandhogs. Those horses ranged in price from $125,000 to $800,000 each. The prosecutors were able to trace over $5 million that was spent on maintaining and transporting these horses. And that money was spent over a six-year period. Just so she could go watch her child compete 
King spent and lived lavishly. She, at one point in time, spent over $150,000 on a trip to the Ritz-Carlton Palm Beach so she could watch her daughter compete in an equestrian competition. She also spent $25,000 a month so her daughter could have a Park Avenue penthouse and live close to school. Her money didn't stop there. King wanted to live the life of an equestrian royalty. She spent $7 million in credit card expenses, had a million dollars worth of jewelry, luxury spending trips to Neiman Marcus, luxury automobiles, maids, housekeepers, private chefs, personal bodyguards. King lived like a king, or as they say in West Texas, King lived high on the hog. That's right, Michael. She lived pretty lavishly, but as a result, the Sandhogs could not. News reports stated that because King embezzled and squandered all of this money, many of the local union members were never able to retire. It's the real tragedy of the case. King pled at sentencing that she was a a good person and begged for leniency, but at the end of the day, she betrayed the hardworking union members who relied on her to safeguard her pensions and their benefit plans. And in the end, she left them deprived of the money that was necessary to have a financially secured retirement. And and you listen to the people who were affected by her or, or read accounts from them, and they all say that they had to continue working and they weren't able to afford retirement. And they were worried about whether or not they were going to be able to put food on the table when they were unable to work anymore. I mean, it's really sad. I mean, setting aside the, the tragic human story of this, what are your takeaways about King's fraud and, and what could have been done to avoid this type of fraud? Well, the one thing that we know is whoever's in this position, they're going to be responsible for managing millions of dollars. There's going to be lots of cash flow every day. It requires someone who's trustworthy. They need to be vetted on the front end, but there still needs to be safeguards in place. And as we saw... From what actually occurred, a simple audit would uncover the fraud. We need to make sure that this individual is not the one that oversees the audit and controls the dissemination of the findings as well. It's shocking to hear that the Department of Labor issued a fine in 2005 and that message never made its way to the trustees. That should never have happened. What do you think? I don't disagree. I think that that's, that's right. The, the more separation you can put at each level, whether it's the check writing level, the audit level, all the way through, I think that separation, multiple people, people looking over each other's shoulders, not only does that catch any fraud, but usually it discourages people from committing fraud in the first place. And then I think another major red flag here is the bankruptcy. I mean, you never want to discourage people who've had personal bankruptcies, but there's a reason why financial institutions don't typically allow people with personal bankruptcies to have access and control to millions and millions of dollars worth of money. They've proven to have an inability to manage that kind of money in their own lives. And so you have to be really skeptical about whether or not you're going to trust them to manage other people's money. And that personal bankruptcy in 1996 really was a big red flag to say that this person maybe wasn't the best person to put in charge of the union members' money. That's right. 
Well, that's all we have today. We hope that you are enjoying Busted. If you have a case that you'd like us to explore, send us an email. Our contact information can be found in the podcast bio. And please tell your friends, shout it from the rooftops, follow and subscribe. We'll see you next time on Busted. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Thank you for listening to this production from Foley and Lardner, LLP. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and is intended as a general overview. The podcast does not constitute legal advice nor solicitation to provide legal services. It's not meant to convey a legal position of Foley and Lardner, LLP, on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. Any opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the firm, its partners, or its clients. The podcast is not intended to create, and listening to the podcast does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The listener should not act upon this information without seeking counsel from a licensed attorney. Foley makes no representations or warranties of any kind, expressed or implied, as to the content of the podcast or to its accuracy or completeness, and accepts no responsibility for an individual who acts or refrains from acting based on information obtained from the podcast. In some jurisdictions, the contents of this podcast may be considered attorney advertising. If applicable, please note that prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.